Hey there, thanks for listening. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Brian through his PyTest book. So if you want to get hands-on and learn something with Python, be sure to consider our courses over at TalkPython Training. Visit them via pythonbytes.fm courses. And if you're looking to do testing and get better with PyTest, check out Brian's book at pythonbytes.fm PyTest. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 249, recorded September 8th, 2021. And I am Brian Aachen. Hey, I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Eric Sounds. Hey, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about who you are. So first of all, I'm a longtime listener to the show. I just told Michael, well, I'm listening since uh, episode one of this podcast, actually. Wow. Also listening to Michael's podcast, obviously. And then um, once I um, get to know it, I started listening to your podcast as well. <laughs> so basically <laughs> everything that's out there, I'm listening. What I'm doing, I'm currently uh, leading the competence center um, for AI and data science at uh, Data Drivers, which is a consultancy firm from Hamburg, Germany. Our focus is mainly on building uh, big data platforms and applications, mostly using cloud-native services. And uh, we try to apply best DevOps and MLOps practices to wherever we are. That's nice. super cool. Do you have a favorite cloud? Um, in all honesty, probably Google Cloud. Got to say it. Yeah. Yeah, nice. <laughs> well, Michael, why don't you kick us off with our first item? Yeah, this one's a little fickle. Comes to us from Ollie. He sent that in. So thank you, Ollie. And sort of indirectly from Patrick Gray over at Risky Business, which is a cool security-focused podcast. Python supports security. They talk about it over there. So you've heard of pickles, obviously, pickling in Python. It's like, I want to take this binary, this binary Python object graph and turn it into a blob that I can stash away and then later get it back. Right? Sometimes it's real simple. Stash it in Reddit, and other systems can pull it out real quick as a cache maybe save it to a file, but where it's become really popular as a means of data exchange is actually in machine learning, okay? So the people who built this thing I'm gonna tell you about were really built it around focusing on the machine learning use case because people are handing around these models, these pre-trained models, and like, here's the model, load it up and roll. And load it up and roll may mean you have an amazing artificial intelligence that drives a car, or it may mean that you have a virus because pickles can contain all sorts of bad things. All right, so this thing I'm going to tell you about is called Fickling, like pickling. It's a decompiler, a static analyzer, and a bytecode rewriter for Python pickle object serializations. So you take these pickle files, these object graphs of Python things, and you can pull them apart and look at them. You can ask questions like, is it a virus? And you can even say things like, let's put a virus in it. <laughs> so... All of these are possible with this tool, and it's made by a security pen testing company called Trail of Bits for basically that purpose, right? So it's kind of either side, um, the attacking pen testing side or the defensive side of the store. So it works on three, six, and above, and you can see it's super simple. You say, uh, you basically do pickle stuff, and you say from fickling.pickle, import pickled, and then you can kind of as if you would use the dis module to disassemble Python code, you can do that with this uh, pickled library and it'll print out something that's kind of like an abstract syntax tree of the pickle. And they've got a real simple example on the GitHub repo. It's like a list of four numbers, one, two, three, four. And then it just shows you, look, we're assigning the results of creating a list and setting these constants in it. 
Another thing that is nice about this is it's not specifically built for Python developers. So it's also kind of um, something you can integrate into other tooling and say continuous integration and stuff like that. So you can run it off the command line as well. You can just on the you know terminal, just type fickling and give it the data and then out comes some answer. The one that people might want to do is the dash dash check safety. And that will try to look and see if it's doing bad things like, for example, talking to os.system or doing other malicious stuff like that. So that's good, but I wouldn't trust that entirely. Like how well is it checking, right? If you, for example, were to encode Python code and then decode it and then take that decoded stuff and it did OS something, right? You feed that to eval or whatever. There's all sorts of layers here, right? So it can check for obvious things, but you know, it's, it's not like an absolute guarantee. And then finally, you can inject arbitrary Python code that will run on unpickling into an existing pickle file with dash dash inject. Seems fine, right? Everything's fine. That's yeah. the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's no uh, malicious code present, here you go. Yeah, exactly. So maybe I'm I'm imagining something like a little thing that count that like prints out in in like flashing bright colors. We told you you shouldn't unpickle untrusted data. Don't do it. <laughs> Beginning hard drive format. It has a, like a loud beeping sound. It was three, two, one. And just like, <laughs> obviously not really do it, but like that would get your attention, right? That'd be a mean, mean trick. But absolutely. This, this uh, is interesting. And, uh, you know, I didn't really put it together with the ML data exchange model exchange story until I heard uh, the folks talking about it over on Risky Business. So it, it seems like, especially in the ML story, you want to have a look at these kind of things. Hmm. Yeah. So I've heard about the use case um, before, actually, but I didn't know that uh, somebody would, would solve it in this way. So pretty, pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, Eric, this is sort of your world, right? The machine learning stuff. So what, how does this uh, sit with you? What do you think? Yeah. So it comes up all the time that you um, pick up some random model that someone has built. So um, as security issues um, become more prevalent, this might be a thing. Yeah. Well, is there better ways to store? Yeah, is there better ways to store it, like JSON or something else? So even models don't have to exist that way, do they? Yeah, I mean, even if there was, there there are some projects that uh, focus on building like some uh, reusable interface across all these uh, different frameworks and stuff. But in reality, people just use Pickle and yeah, really, yeah, yeah, they do. I just didn't know anybody was really using it for much. No, Uh, it's it's absolutely common. So within like say Scikit-Learn, which is probably most used library ever. Um, you just uh, use Pickle on the dashboard, store your files. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, cool. So this is a, a useful library from Trail of Bits. People can check out and we're going to start with everything is fine and we'll end with everything is fine as well, Brian. But uh, <laughs> over to you. Okay. Well, um, this is something, uh, it's a blast from the past a little bit, uh, about a year ago. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about virtual environments and uh, directories. So, um, and there's an article from Hinnick that's called Python Project Local Virtual Virtual Env Management. It's that's a mouthful, but the idea, and we've talked about with the morning this before, um, is to be able I to still just, want it. Yeah. So just to go when if I've got a several projects going on, whenever I like CD into the into a directory with this project. I just want the act, the virtual environment to activate automatically. And then when I leave it and go to another one, it's just automatically switched. Apparently that already works and we've already covered it, but I missed it. Um, so 
actually, in episode 185, you brought up uh, Durenv, and in part of it, it's uh, it's the ability to you can have per project isolated development environments. Uh, yes, but I didn't pick that up yet. But Hinnick uh, just said, "This is how you do it." This is a, and uh, how you do it really is just you just uh, have you have to have you have to install Durenv for for at first and then you put a .env rc file in a directory and say layout python and then what python version so like layout python python 3.9 and then that's it that's all you got to do and i i'm like that can't be that easy um and it was i did it this morning and and it's like man this is great so on my mac it's all solved um it, but it doesn't work on windows so oh well um <laughs> must use uh linux subsystem for windows or windows subsystem for linux wsl i guess it is oh okay but yeah, yeah that, so, i mean that sort of that semi solves it um, yeah yeah so bit. i really I, I probably have this need more within uh windows than i have in in on a, my, my mac but i have it in both places so i'm i'm gonna start using it it's great um plus uh like you covered last time uh you can also have uh it, Bonus, you can put environmental variables in there too, so that in the project you've got you know, like your perhaps your secrets or um, or just different environmental set settings you want to use. Yeah, I think people will look in your .rc whatever your bash rc um, zshrc whatever files for your secrets, but I suspect it's much less likely to go hunting through virtual environments and looking for their activate scripts and see what's in them. You know, yeah. people, people know, but fewer people know that stuff gets stashed in there. So that's probably good. Right. So um, I guess mainly the story is uh, I knew that you could do it, but I didn't realize how easy it was. So this is it's super simple. It just took a little bit. Um, and then I, my my second thought was it isn't it's not that hard to create virtual environments, though. Is this saving any time? I still got to create this file and put this stuff in it. It actually is more typing a little bit more, but it didn't take me long to realize that it's when you're switching between different directories, you save a ton of time. So yeah, it's the going back and forth between projects, right? Yeah. So that's it really just kind of neat. Um, yeah. Brett out in the live stream's got a comment for us. If you use pi env, you can run pi env local env name in your project folder and get this behavior as well. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you get it to uh, activate uh, by just changing directory into it is what I'm not totally sure. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah, you I'm get the sure. Python version that way, right? But not the actual virtual environment. Yeah, possibly if, you, if you've if you installed Python through PyENV as well, yeah. And then David has a comment back, uh, the first topic out there in the live stream. Hey, David. The irony of legacy object serialization <laughs> being used on cutting-edge machine learning. <laughs> like that one? <laughs> yeah, and then Teddy out the live stream. Hey, Teddy, he says, does it work with an IDE? I changes the interpreter based on the folder you're in within a workspace in Viscose, for example. That I don't know, but I was going to add the personal comment that I don't need this nearly as much as I felt like I used to because the way I jump between projects is usually jump, open them up in PyCharm and jump between them there. And that always activates. If you go to the terminal in PyCharm, it activates that environment for that project. I don't know. I'm on the okay. command line all the time, so... Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. If it. you're on the command line bus, busting around a lot, then that's then um, both Brett and Alvaro have a follow up. Pi ENV adds a shim that intercepts the calls to Python. So, yeah, very good. So, it must be that you have to install mm. Python through Pi ENV, but then it'll also do this. Very cool. Good okay. to know. I didn't know that. Oh, 
But me too. Yeah. Nice. All right, Eric, first one is for you. Yeah, so I uh, brought uh, with me the test containers Python uh, library, which, um, and like, let me quote this one from the description because I think it's a pretty good uh, summarization. So um, test containers Python is a port for test containers Java that allows Docker containers for functional integration testing. It uh, provides capabilities to spin up Docker containers such as databases, Selenium web browsers, and any other containers for testing. So maybe not that many uh, new things in here, but um, we use this in a project lately, and um, especially uh, we use this in integration pipelines uh, using cloud native services. So there's a container for Google Cloud pops up, for example, which is pretty amazing. Also for like your Kafka. Um, this is originally a Java project. Um, so there's uh, still a lot to do for the uh, Python community in order to catch up uh, a bunch of interfaces that need to be implemented and stuff. Um, one uh, example, um, it is uh, here. Let me just uh, show you that one. So, uh, there's, an, there's um, in the repo, you can find um, um, an example um, of how to use this within your CI pipeline. So what's happening here is actually that if you have like a standard CI and, uh, pipeline for your integration test, uh, which consists of uh, Docker containers that we use Docker in Docker to actually uh, run the integration test. So all your standard uh, 2021 uh, stuff in here, I guess. Yeah, this is super cool. And the way you do it is you just create a context manager. Right, you exactly. just say something like, with MySQL container, here's a connection string, and then you can just do your normal exactly. database yep. stuff over to it, yeah. Yeah, so it integrates uh, perfectly fine with PyTest. We, uh, we did that uh, a lot. Uh, and so, yeah, the syntax is pretty cool. It's super easy to use. The integration with the CI/CD works fine. So um, yeah. Yeah, Jada. Brian, we could, we could use this with um, a test fixture and a little yield action, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't wait to try to play with one, something like this. Yeah. We talked about this way long ago. I brought this up, I believe, but I'm glad you brought it back, Eric, because it's really useful and it's really neat. And there's more stuff than actually is listed on the README for some reason. Um, exactly. Like if you flip through the actual uh, documentation, you can see that there's other containers, right? For example, I believe there's, um, there's a MongoDB one, for example, but that's not listed in the documentation. And then... The cloud emulators are probably neat for you for testing Absolutely. there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I find off-putting from like cloud native type stuff is if you don't have access to the cloud, you're dead in the water, right? Like, and that can be a problem for continuous integration and for all sorts of things. So things like this are, are pretty neat. It's definitely challenging. So stuff like this helps. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it's, it's an interesting trade-off because on one hand, sure, you can mock out your database and then just test against your test data. But then if your data model in the database changes, but you don't think to update the test data, well, then your code's going to, like SQL Alchemy, for example, will freak out and crash if the scheme is not a perfect match. Whereas you wouldn't find that in testing if you weren't letting it talk a little bit to the database. And like, there's just interesting things uh, like this. Uh, Brian, you even had an episode about not mocking out your database, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it, the, the, as little as you can... I guess let's do it the reverse as close as you can have to the real environment, the better. And this is um, when people are deploying on containers, testing with containers makes total sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Want to talk a little more infrastructure? Yeah. All right. So I have the one, it's got to be the shortest named thing for uh, a featured item, JC, two letters. 
JC. Uh, so JC comes to us from Garrett. Thank you, Garrett, for sending that in. And at first I was like, I don't know if this is relevant to me or if this is interesting. But the more I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, this is actually pretty awesome. To me, let me, I'll, I'll read what JC describes itself as in a moment. But to me, what this is, is it is basically what web scraping is to the web, JC is to Linux. So there's not a nice API for it, but I'd like to somehow wrap a little Python magic around it and then have an API for it, okay? So its official story is it's a CLI tool in Python library that converts the output of popular command line tools and file types to JSON. And it allows piping one thing to the next, obviously, because it's Linux-like. So the idea is, you know, the example they have on their, their site there is dig. So dig is a command that'll give you information about a domain. So you could do something like dig example.com pipe JC, and then you tell JC what it's expecting output from just whatever the print output to the terminal is in dig, and it will parse that and turn it into a Python dictionary, right? So I could sub process run dig, but then I just get a huge blob of text and I've got to basically go through it, try to understand it and so on. And this knows the exact format and turns it into like structured data. So think of all of these different uh, Linux commands you may run. You find a whole bunch of them. They're like a huge list down here. So airport, ARP, cron tab, date, CSV, uh, free, DU, hash, history, hosts, IP config, netstat, all those types of commands, syscontrol. So for example, if you're automating daemons and stuff like that, you can now do that from Python. And then instead of getting just a text blob and an exit code, you get a dictionary back that you can then check out and program against. What do you think? Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, there's a bunch of built-ins. If uh, hopefully, hopefully the thing you're looking for is one of these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suspect it's not extraordinarily hard to do uh to add another one yeah yeah uh, but you can also run it on the command line you don't have to use it in python which is what i was scrolling around looking for so if you want to like let's suppose i want to go and run dig and i just want to go to the answers and get the data which would be the ip address of some domain you can say uh, jc run this thing and then jq-r or there's like a, a way to just pass over uh, a string and basically the string you pass in is the object dereferencing uh the the traversal of the dictionary so dot bracket dot answer bracket dot data and it'll go and pull that all apart which is pretty neat yeah. so it's got a cool uh command line terminal automation aspect just like fickle this is a nice wizard effect so that if you know how to do this well and people come over and watch you do this, they will be amazed. Yes, so. yeah. <laughs> Just make sure you spin up your like third or fourth terminal while you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Eric, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, so sounds like uh, I found something that I can uh, put like uh, my usual Sunday afternoon time into. So yeah, I'll play around play with around it. This. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, because every now and then I want to do some sub process thing and it needs to call a, some kind of Linux command. I'm like, oh. Uh, what am I going to do? Am I just going to check the status code, the return code, and hope it works, and then just say it didn't work if it didn't work? Or you know, you could do so much more with this. Mm. Sorry, Brian. Well, there's there's some stuff that that may not that's less Unixy that other people might need. Like um, you can parp parp you can parse uh, piplist and pip show and uh, and YAML and XML with this as well. So that's pretty nice. cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right. 
how about some ellipses or I don't know how else to say it. Dot, dot, dot. The next thing. Do say more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, I, this was a surprise to me. I guess I haven't run into this yet. Or maybe just I forgot. But um, Python has ellipses and it has the keyword ellipses. Ellipses? Ellipses? Ellipses. Ellipsi. Ellipsi. Keep going. Um, (laughs) And it's an actual object within Python. Um, Who knew? And then uh, also you can just do dot, dot, dot. And that's a a, a valid thing, uh, an identifier. So it's a special value. um, And, but you can use it for all sorts of stuff. Like uh, the, uh, oh, by the way, I'm uh, referencing an article called What is the Python, What is Python's Ellipses Object from Florian Dalitz? Thanks, Florian, for writing that. Um, so it's, but uh, the Python or the definition really is uh, it's the same, the, the ellipsis literal is the same as the literal dot, dot, dot. It's a special value used most, mostly in conjunction with extended slicing syntax for user defined container data types i don't even what does, what does that mean um i guess pandas uses it maybe but the the article comes up has some some interesting things you can use it in place of pass because it is a valid has a valid value you can kind of do uh, a def, a dictionary or a, or a function definition and instead of saying pass just do three dots and that's valid python I'm kind of liking a, that. I'm sure it's, it's it's people will be like, what are you doing? But at the same time, it's like, <laughs> that's really what you wanted to put down there. It's like, I just don't want to put anything, but Python won't work unless I kind of close this off. So here's a pass, right? Well, mm-hmm. also, one of the things I was thinking about is, no, I would probably use pass all the time when when in that case. But when writing documentation and you really want to have an, a working code example, but you want to just indicate there's going to be more code there, that's a cool thing to put in. Uh, anyway. Um, so there's that. And then there's also um, using it in type information. So uh, with type information, for instance, apparently, like, let's say I've got a, a function that returns a tuple or tuple. I've got these words today. Anyway, uh, a tuple with two integers, you can just say a tuple with two, in, two with int int. But if you don't know how many integers are going to be there, you can do the three dots. And apparently that works with typing. Um, that's that's neat. That's so, very neat. Um, there's not a lot. Apparently, it's used also within uh, Fast API and Typer, but it's there. And if you want, uh, if you want to use uh, to implement a certain feature where that might make sense, it is a it is a thing that's available to you. Like maybe you could have an operator, a dot 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 operator on your something. So, <laughs> so I, I learned this uh, just the other day from a tweet from Raymond Hedger, where he was asking people like, "How would you do this?" and uh, the, he brought the, up the exact uh, same example um, using the documentation and the pass or the uh, ellipsis instead. And I didn't yeah. even know that this one, uh, that this was a Python object. Uh, I, I knew it from the typing, but um, um, so the question is, um, can you can you pass this object around? Can you like return a from a function value like dot dot dot. Uh, I imagine. I don't know. Yeah. Should, should yeah, work, right? Uh, it should work. Yeah, it should work. Yeah. Okay. Nice. <laughs> well, I'll try it out. Well, we're, 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 we go on to the next topic. Yeah, that, that's uh, that one surprised me. Well done, Florian. Yeah. So the 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 last one that I brought uh, with me um, 
actually, since I lead the data science and AI team, I, I got to bring something with me that has to do with it. So um, I brought with me the uh, PyTorch forecasting uh, library. Um, so, um, um, Michael, you just um, used this analogy um, in a, a couple of minutes ago. So I'm, I'm going to use an analogy now. So for me, um, PyTorch forecasting looks like... Uh, um, the, the, what fast AI does for computer vision and natural language processing, it does for time series forecasting. Because um, nice. there was like a, a lack of um, a deep learning uh, for, for type series forecasting, time series forecasting. And um, actually, I think that PyTorch forecasting is going to um, close this gap. So it, it comes in um, with a bunch of uh, important uh, features, actually. So it's built um, on top of PyTorch Lightning, which um, allows training on CPUs, uh, single and multiple GPUs, basically out of the box. So there's there's been a lot, a lot of uh, software engineering involved for all the data scientists in the past, and this library just uh, makes like. Yeah, makes it pretty simple. So um, oh, you, have cool. to work, you, you have to work very hard in order to mess things up uh, with this library, I guess. So um, and what it also brings um, is a uh, implementation of a um, model that is called uh, uh, the Temporal Fusion Transformers. So this is uh, from Google Research. Actually, there's a, also a TensorFlow-based implementation. Um, I'm, I'm going to put the uh, link to the paper in the show notes. Um, this is a very interesting uh, model that has um, yeah, performed pretty well on a dozen uh, 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 prominent uh, benchmarks in uh, uh, very lately, and it has uh, a very huge, uh, huge benefit, which is that it is uh, pretty interpretable. So you can calc it does actually uh, calculate feature importance for you. So this is in the real world applications very important because uh, whenever you stick your data into these models and something good comes out, people will always ask you, ask you so okay, so what what was the important part of the data? So how how, how does it uh, influence the model and the outcome? So uh, temporal fusion transformers, they do this for you. Also, the uh, PyTorch uh, forecasting comes with uh, Optuna, which is a, a popular library for hyperparameter tuning, which is also um, uh, implemented in here. Right. There might be. So this does um, like multivariate time series, uh, multivariable time series. Yeah. It, so, so the yeah, multi-horizon so part of it is, yeah. is pretty important, actually. So go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, so the hyperparameter tuning might say, this part actually doesn't make any difference in the prediction, but this other part does. So pay attention to that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this looks really good. Yeah. So if you want to predict the future about sales, home prices, <laughs> yeah. uh, heart rate, whatever, right? Oh, it comes, comes up all the time. comes up yeah. all the time. And I know from uh, a couple of uh, guys who work um, for the for the Google uh, Google Clouds uh, of this world and the AWSs that uh, within these uh, software as a services or these APIs that they provide for, let's like, say, a demand forecast, they use this uh, temporal fusion transformers under the hood. So yeah, yeah uh, this looks great. Just spin it up and use it. Yeah, great recommendation. Uh, follow up from the previous one, Brian Will McGugan. Hey, Will, out in the live stream says it's the dot dot dot. Ellipsis sometimes is used as a sentinel value to mean no value when none is a valid value. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And also, yes, you can return it from a function. So nice. <laughs> just fine. And then uh, let's see. Someone out in the live stream asked if it has methods. Does it have methods or anything that you can do to it? That was Teddy. Uh, yes, but only the built ins. 
right? I don't think it from object. I don't think it does anything interesting besides just be dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And then Anderson, hey, Anderson, says, it's a pity the ecosystem is moving towards PyTorch Lightning. The separation of concerns there is not very nice. In my opinion, PyTorch Ignite does a better job in that aspect. Eric, that's all you. Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. Um, still, I mean, uh, one thing that you've got to keep in mind. Um, so uh, speaking of separation of concerns, right? There's so many data scientists out there that if you throw like separations of concerns uh, at them, they just answer like, uh, yeah, here's my model. So, so what is separation of concerns in this sense, right? So if it, this works, if people use it, it's probably good. Yeah, cool. Brian, extras? Extras. Oh, I just wanted to bring up uh, that Python 3.10 uh, RC2 is out. So the release candidate, the second release candidate for Python 3.10 is out, so people can play with it. Apparently, we're like maybe a month away from getting 3.10, so I'm excited exciting. about that. Yeah, that's yeah. Me. very exciting. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I got a couple to throw out there. Really? Remember, uh, can you imagine? So, what a surprise. (laughs) Can you imagine? So, uh, remember, we talked about several things. Uh, I talked about um, how I turned off all of the tracking stuff and all those things on the website, which I think is good because so many people run ad blockers. They were, it was like pretty inconsistent data anyway, inaccurate. Then I mentioned goaccess.io. I said, that'd be cool. Maybe we should apply it. I ended up writing a ton of automation to apply this to Python bias, talk Python, talk Python training, all the things. And it's pretty cool. I built some automation that will download all the Nginx log files, some of which are text, some of which are gzipped, and then run this thing across it and it will build like one giant monthly log thing. Then GoAccess can then turn into nice, beautiful reports. So very excited to have uh, GoAccess working well. And instead of running on the server, I actually just download and then run it on like a monthly report locally which i think is kind of cool yeah all right one uh we had some feedback about uh caffeinate remember caffeinate you could you can type caffeinate on the mac os terminal and it'll keep your system alive yeah. well, nathan henry said you mentioned um over mac os the caffeinate tool it says um you can follow it with a long-running command to keep awake so you could say like caffeinate python dash c import time time.sleep or so give it some kind of so you could say caffeinate python and some script you want to run so you could reverse it if that script doesn't use keep awake or i think that's what it was right so you could apply caffeinate to your python code and just say no stay awake while you're doing this or you can even apply it to a running process using a pid so it just stays awake while that process is running then yeah and then it'll go away yeah okay nice yeah so it's like the reverse of what we talked about then then Sean Taber from Teaching uh, Python said, isn't this what we were asking for? Remember, we were talking about the, the yeah, keyboards. keyboards. Uh, and here's a, a Python one. <laughs> this is a M60 mechanical keyboard, the open source USB nice. BLE Bluetooth Low Energy 5, hot swappable 60% keyboard powered by Python. So this one comes with Python built in, which is pretty excellent. So if people want to play yeah. that, they nice. definitely can. Uh, the next one I want to throw out there real quick uh, comes to us from Mark Little, a friend of mine here in Portland. And basically the subtitle is that, uh, this is an article from CNBC Finance News, that open source is booming. So uh, the headline has to do with MongoDB, but it's more broad. So if people are interested in kind of following up on that, it's kind of cool. So uh, MongoDB surged on Friday, which was last Friday. Is now worth as much as IBM paid for Red Hat. Databricks raised private financing around at 38 
billion dollar valuation. And just, you know, these are the mega open source companies, but it's, it's pretty interesting to just give you a sense. Like, uh, I read this article, like, oh, that's pretty interesting. These numbers kind of just like bounce off me. But the one that made it stick for me was MongoDB was a private company for a while. And then it became, then it IPO'd, right? It had VC money, then it IPO'd. Do you have a sense? Do you, either of you have a sense for how much it IPO'd for? Seemed crazy, right? Like, like a $1.2, $1.4 billion. MongoDB is worth $30 billion now, right? So even after like the crazy IPO, you know, $1.2 billion to start and now over $30 billion. Wow. So that is an insane crazy. amount of growth in these. And then they talk about Confluent and JFrog and a bunch of other um, uh, Elastic. So if you kind of want to dig into the business side of open source, that's pretty interesting. All right, two more. I've been doing a ton of video encoding lately. I use FFmpeg for some of the um, audio processing and other types of things around both the podcast and the courses. So uh, attribution here. This is from Jim Anderson. Sent this over. Thanks, Jim. FFmpeg.wasm. So here's FFmpeg, which is a very popular tool in that world, but as a WebAssembly wow. thing, which is pretty awesome. And um, gosh, I'm trying to remember what the name of the library was, but over in, we did talk about on Python Bytes, I think with Cecil Phillip on one time, maybe it was even him that brought it up, but there's a Python library that will run web assemblies. So not run WebAssembly in your browser or put Python in the browser, but reverse it. Like I have a WebAssembly library that does cool stuff, put it in my Python code and run it here. So you could take FFmpeg, wasm and pure python and have like a no dependency sort of audio video processing tool in python which i think is pretty cool cool all right last one i told you would start with everything is fine and we're going to end with everything is fine credit card stealing backdoored packages found in PyPI, uh, python's PyPI library hub what that's not good <laughs> this this is not good this is not good um when you hear people talk about remote code execution that typically is bad. Like I'm on the internet, people send me bad stuff. Now they have my computer and I don't even necessarily know it. So apparently in addition to this, so these were found and removed. It was something, uh, what was it? It was something around the line of noblesse, N-O-B-L-E-S-S-E and a couple of variations on that spelling. That was the problem. So I'm happy to see I didn't install that, but this doesn't make me happy. It looks like it's fixed. So the PyPI team also just patched a remote code execution hole in their platform, which potentially could have been exploited to hijack the entirety of PyPI. <laughs> that one makes me way more nervous than typo squatting and other weirdness. And it was a, a vulnerability in the way the they were doing GitHub actions with PyPI, which allowed okay. um, a malicious pull request to execute arbitrary code over there, which is not ideal. Nice. Yeah, but I'm glad to hear that's fixed. Anyway, everything's fine. Doesn't feel fine. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> More like Eric, a nightmare, you, to be honest. Yeah, to be honest. Eric, anything else you uh, want to share with us? Uh, no, just uh, thank you guys again for having me on the show. Uh, pretty fun. And yeah. uh, make sure that uh, you guys follow me on Twitter. And yep. uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll put a link. yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes for your Twitter. No, nice. we are, are done, are we, Brian? No, we need no, a joke. One thing is missing. Yeah, 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 it's important. So this one is more of a not an ML one. It's more of a web web API type type thing. So so often people will write web APIs and just return some kind of message in a JavaScript dictionary 
that says things like bad response or whatever, but you're supposed to use HTTP status codes, right? Like if there's a bad request, you should return the status code 400. If it's not found as an entity, you should return 404 or whatever. So here's uh, like two kids at school exchanging messages and it has server on one of them, client on the other, and 200 on the message exchange here. And then at the bottom, <laughs> the one kid that got the message reads the JavaScript that says status code 400 detail, bad request. He's like, why? Why did you do this to me? <laughs> this is good. Yeah, this is like little Bobby like tables. Let, the, let this be a lesson to you. You don't pass messages like that. Come on. <laughs> it's, so, it's so true. It's yeah. totally true. Totally true. All right. Well, cool. that's it for our jokes and everything, Brian. Yeah. Well, it was another fun Wednesday on Python Bytes. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks, Eric. Brian. Yeah, thanks, Eric, for being here. Thanks a lot, guys. See you yeah. around. Bye, all. Bye. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.